sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 7 through 12. So I invite you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. The sermon is entitled, The Same Yesterday, Today, and Forever. Would you give your full attention to the reading now of God's holy and inspired Word? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is indeed precious to us, Your people, It is more precious than silver or gold. It is sweeter to us than honey. We ask our Father that you would now grant to us that that meekness, that humility that we need, that we might receive your word by faith, that it might fall into our hearts as in fertile soil and produce much fruit unto your glory. Would you make it now an effectual means of salvation for your elect people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, the church has received the book of Hebrews as the inspired Word of God since the time it was written. The signature of God is quite clear throughout it, but the same can't be said for the human author since it was written anonymously. While we don't have time to explore this morning the various possibilities of human authorship, we can say with confidence that whoever he was, one thing is clear, he was a preacher of the apostolic faith. We know this because at the end of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 22, he describes what he's just written as a word of exhortation. And that same phrase, word of exhortation, is used in Acts chapter 13 and verse 15, to describe a sermon. So what we have in the book of Hebrews is a kind of hybrid between a letter, since it was written down and sent to a local church, and it includes uh, uh, personal greetings at the end and a sermon. So we have a kind of a letter and a sermon brought together. The preacher sends his sermon to a local church that was struggling with, with two connected threats, one from without and the other from within. In chapter 10 and verses 32 through 34, we learn that the threat from without was persecution. The hearers to whom the author preaches were persecuted. That persecution had come in the form of public reproach 
affliction, imprisonment, and the confiscation of their property. But thankfully, as we learn in chapter 12 and verse 4 of Hebrews, it had not yet intensified to the point of martyrdom. So given the way the preacher sends greetings to his hearers from those who, who come from Italy in chapter 13 and verse 24, and given the, the way the persecution hadn't yet risen to the level of martyrdom, it's, it's most likely that his recipients were members of the church in Rome during the reign of Emperor Claudius from 40, sometime between 41 and 54 A.D. Claudius, in concert with the Jews, prosecuted a campaign of persecution against the church in Rome that matches the description we find in Hebrews. Such persecutions would eventually intensify to include martyrdom under the reign of Emperor Nero, who succeeded Claudius in 54 AD. So given this threat from without, some within the church, particularly those Hebrews who formed or formerly worshipped God according to the old covenant pattern, were being tempted to abandon the new administration of the covenant, which began at Jesus' first coming, in order to return to the old administration, which, of course, was centered around Jerusalem, its temple, its Levitical priesthood, and its various animal sacrifices. This temptation is the threat the church faced from within. The preacher's purpose is, therefore, to exalt the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant that Jesus mediates in order to warn his hearers against turning back to the old covenant with its earthly copies and provisional shadows. To turn back to those earthly copies and provisional shadows, that is, the temple, the priesthood, its animal sacrifices, after receiving access to the heavenly originals and the eschatological light in Christ would be to abandon Christ altogether. The preacher makes his argument by appealing to several Old Testament texts, the chief of which is Jeremiah chapter 31, which he quotes in chapter 8 of his sermon. Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy about the new covenant. In fact, you might want to turn to Jeremiah, or pardon me, to, to uh, Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 now. The preacher appeals to it in order to draw a contrast between the old and the new. But what's the nature of this contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant? Our Baptist brothers would say that it's one of substance, arguing that while the old covenant prepared the way for the gospel of Christ, it wasn't actually an administration of it. We would disagree We believe the difference is not one of substance, but one of administration. The Old Covenant and New Covenant are substantially identical. Both administer the same gospel promise. Both administer the same Christ. But the Old Covenant administers Christ through earthly copies and provisional shadows, whereas the New Covenant administers Him through the heavenly originals and the eschatological light. That's what Jeremiah 31 is all about. It contains, as you see there in the text, three new covenant promises that the preacher says are better. They are better than the old. We see the first in chapter 8 and verse 10. The text says, I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. The question behind that promise is where? Where? 
Where are the laws of God written and put? Whereas the old covenant laws were written on tablets of stone and put within an ark in the most holy place of the tabernacle, establishing the special dwelling place of God with His people in the new covenant. In the new covenant, they're written on the human heart and placed within the human mind, beginning with the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The humanity of Christ is the eschatological ark of the covenant. He is the glory of the heavenly holy places into which He ascended after His resurrection and to which we ascend even now in new covenant worship. That's why Jeremiah chapter 3, if you look back in Jeremiah's prophecy to chapter 3 and verses 16 through 17, Jeremiah in that text prophesies the same new covenant saying this, listen closely, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. Of course, the Jerusalem to which Jeremiah refers in that prophecy is ultimately the new Jerusalem, which is presently in heaven. We see the second better promise of Jeremiah 31 in chapter 8 and verse 11 of Hebrews. The text says, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. The question behind this promise is not where, but who? Who? Who will be set apart as priests to serve within the heavenly holy places in the new administration of the covenant. Whereas in the old covenant, the Levitical priests alone, and even more specifically, Aaron and his sons alone, had intimate fellowship with the Lord in his tabernacle and then later his temple as representatives of the congregation. And whereas they alone were charged to be the regular teachers of God's law to his people, saying to their brothers, as Moses did at Mount Sinai, know the Lord in the new covenant, Christ has become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And all believers are made priests with Him. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been made a priest with Him, not in an earthly copy of a tabernacle or a temple, but in the heavenly original. You have greater access to God than Moses had in your worship while you remain in this life. All have equal access, all believers, not just a select group of men, priests at the tabernacle, and again, more specifically, Aaron and his son, sons, but all believers are made priests with the Lord Jesus Christ. All have equal access to intimacy with God in His heavenly holy places. We see the third better promise of Jeremiah 31, in chapter 8 and verse 12, the text says, I'll remember their sins no more. Of course,
course, the question behind that promise isn't where or who, but the question is how. How? How is the better place secured by the better priest? And the answer is a better propitiation. Whereas in the Old Covenant, there was a perpetual reminder of sins in the animal sacrifices such that no high priest ever entered the most holy place and remained. We read that earlier from Leviticus 16. The Lord reminded Aaron through Moses on several occasions in that, in that text to do, be very careful to do what he says, lest he die. But in the New Covenant... In the new covenant, there is no such reminder for sin since Christ has offered himself up once for all to satisfy divine justice for us. As the preacher says in chapter 1 and verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is not that the new covenant only includes the regenerated elect, as our Baptist brothers would say, but that the new covenant offers even more intimate fellowship with God for all believers within the church as we draw near to Him through the new and living way that the Lord Jesus Christ, our eschatological high priest, opened for us into heaven by His once-for-all sacrifice. So in summary… The new covenant is better than the old covenant because it includes a better place, a better priesthood, and a better propitiation. The eschatological place, the eschatological priesthood, the eschatological propitiation. This morning we find ourselves within the final section of the sermon. Having concluded the substance of his argument on the superiority of the New Covenant administration and having encouraged his readers to persevere in the faith toward that better heavenly country which we've received in Christ as an unshakable kingdom, the preacher now instructs his hearers in chapter 13 with a series of abbreviated ethical commands. In verses 1 through 6, he reminds them of their duty to continue in brotherly love, showing hospitality to strangers, visiting those who are in prison, holding marriage in honor, and being content with what they have, which they've all been enabled to do through the Lord who, though physically absent from them, remains with them spiritually in the outpoured Holy Spirit. In our text for this morning, the preacher continues his instruction with commands that are particularly connected with the better promises of the new covenant in order to encourage his hearers to persevere in the faith and to beware of falsehood. And as we'll see, the solid ground on which we stand, even as we endure trials of various kinds, beloved, is the perfection of the ascended Christ. We'll divide our text for this morning into two sections. The first, verses 7 through 8, where we see persevering in the faith. And the second, verses 9 through 12, where we see persevering against falsehood. So persevering in the faith, persevering against falsehood. Let's begin in that first section there, verses 7 through 8, where we see persevering in the faith. Look again at verse 7. The preacher says, remember your leaders 
Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Later in verse 17, the preacher will instruct the church concerning their present leaders, but now he commands them to remember their past leaders who had apparently already died, which is why he refers to, quote, the outcome of their way of life. These were men, he says, who, quote, spoke to you the Word of God. In other words, they were officers charged by God to faithfully preach and teach His Word among His people. And since, the, since after the apostles, those offices are limited to, the, to that of minister and elder, we're right to conclude that these were the ministers and elders that had once served this church. Now, notice three things about these ministers and elders. First, notice that there's more than one of them. The preacher doesn't refer to a single leader, but to a plurality, a plurality of leaders. Now, it could be that he's thinking of a succession of leaders, but I don't think that's the case at all. As we look at the rest of the New Testament, particularly the pastoral epistles, we see that the Lord has ordained that the church will be governed by a plurality of elders. In fact, throughout the Bible, we find the Lord using a plurality of leaders for the regular governance of His church. In the Old Testament, they were priests and, and elders. In the New Testament, they're ministers and elders. These men never function alone in the exercise of their office, but together as a council to nourish and to protect the church under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in keeping with the way we as Presbyterians believe the church ought to be governed by a plurality of elders and never by a single individual. There are two reasons for that, at least two. One is, given our understanding of sin and our continual struggle with indwelling sin, the elders and ministers of the church need one another. They need one another to hold one another accountable. It is a dangerous thing for any man to claim unto himself the authority of Christ. The second reason is that Christ is actually the only individual in which ecclesiastical authority is actually vested. And he exercises his authority through a plurality of elders. And therefore, the moment any single officer claims the authority that belongs to councils, he has usurped the authority of Christ by setting himself in Christ's place. You men, you men who serve as officers in the church must pay very careful attention to this. You sit together on councils, not only at the local level, which we call the session, and at the regional level, which we call presbytery, but even occasionally at the national level, which we call general assembly. You share authority with your fellow ministers and elders as you act together in the governance of the church, but you all sit under the authority of the one head and king of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave Himself for you, but He will not trade seats with you, nor should you ever want Him to. Isn't that a terrifying thought? That you would sit upon the throne of glory? What a terrifying thought. Jesus is the great shepherd 
of the sheep, including the ministers and elders of his church. Second, notice what these leaders are called to do. Their primary calling is to speak the word of God as the regular teachers of the church. Their authority is declarative. They speak the word of God. It is not legislative. They don't produce the word of God. This too is because Christ rules through them by his word. It is the word of Christ that is effective for the salvation of his elect. And so you men who serve as teachers in the church, do you study diligently to show yourself approved? You should, since you speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. How careful do you think, for instance, our press secretary is with her words as she speaks on behalf of our president? I'm sure she weighs her words very carefully before she ever opens her mouth. How much more those who speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is why ministers and elders ought to know the Scriptures well and be able to teach them well. Third, notice the way the preacher appeals not simply to what these men taught, but to how they lived. Such men are not only called to know and to teach God's Word, they're called to be good examples of what it means to live according to God's Word. And that's why the Spirit places so much emphasis on moral character when He lists the qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The church needs not only to hear the Word by declaration, but to see the Word by example. This has been the preacher's focus ever since the end of chapter 10. In chapters 11 and 12, what what did he do? He pointed his hearers to various examples of what it means to live by faith. And so now he points them to examples they've all personally known. These are men like Abel, like Noah, like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Moses, and like Jesus, who walked by faith and not by sight. They're men who overcame the world and its demonic ruler, laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to run with endurance the race that was set before them. These are men who had already entered into glory with Christ, those whom the preacher described previously in chapter 12 and verse 23 as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And so the preacher commands his hearers to remember them and to imitate their faith that they too might press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, how often do you reflect upon the lives of those faithful men that have served you well as officers in the church? I pray that you can think back to such men, men who have invested time energy in your lives. I pray that you do think back to them often. You give God praise for them, and you remember the way they conducted their lives, and I pray that you seek as the preacher commands his hearers in Hebrews. You seek to imitate their faith. Look now at verse 8. The preacher continues saying, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, and forever. 
So having called his hearers to think back to their former leaders, the preacher now reminds them that though such leaders may come and go in the life of the church, there is ultimately only one leader over the church, and he doesn't come and go. He remains forever perfected and enthroned over all things. Earlier in chapter 7 and verse 16, the preacher spoke of the superiority of Christ's priesthood, saying, He, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And before this, in chapter 2 and verse 10, he spoke of the way that God the Father made, quote, the founder of our salvation, that is the incarnate Son, perfect, perfect through suffering. In other words, what the preacher is saying is the Father glorified the humanity of His incarnate Son when He raised Him up from the dead. Whereas the old Levitical priesthood, like the old covenant itself, was marked and moved along by death, in the death of the priests who succeeded one another, in the death of the animals that had to be offered up every time a a congregant came before the Lord in worship. Whereas that old Levitical priesthood and the old covenant itself were marked and moved along by death in anticipation of the Christ to come, the Melchizedekian priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, like the new covenant itself, is marked and moved along by resurrection life. No member of the new covenant church should ever fear that a wicked priest would hold office over him. This is a fear that the old covenant saints must have had. You can imagine as the church dwindles in the days of Manasseh. You can imagine as the church dwindles in the days of Zedekiah and as Nebuchadnezzar is bearing down on Jerusalem. You can imagine that faithful remnant calling out to God, mourning the fact that a wicked priest, a wicked high priest is now ruling over them. But that will never happen for the new covenant church. The risen and ascended Christ is our high priest, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Beloved church, you've recently gone through a difficult season. And while the church continues its pilgrimage through this world in anticipation of entering the world that is to come on the last day, it will always suffer such trials. The ups and downs of this life are inevitable. This is the Father's discipline for the children that He loves, as the author teaches us in chapter 12. But take heart in this wonderful truth, beloved. Take heart in this wonderful truth. Hear it very clearly. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the unchangeable anchor of your soul the unchangeable anchor of our souls. And because He was tempted in every way, yet without sin, He is able to sympathize with you in your weakness and help you.
He invites you. He invites you in the midst of the messiness of life in the world that now is, He invites you this morning to boldly approach the throne of grace that you might find grace to help in time of need. Moving on now to the second section, verses 9 through 12, where the preacher commands his hearers to persevere against falsehood. Look at verse 9. The text says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So having begun by commanding his hearers to remember and imitate the faith of their former leaders, the preacher now prohibits them from being led away by false leaders. He describes the falsehood that these leaders might teach as diverse and strange. Diverse and strange. The truth of the gospel is not diverse. The truth of the gospel is a single unified teaching from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 all the way to the end of Revelation. The truth of the gospel is not strange or new, but it is familiar and old. And notice, notice what the preacher identifies as the goal of teaching this truth. It is to have our hearts, that is the inner self, strengthened by grace. This is much like what the Lord taught Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, saying, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It is through God's Word that He feeds our souls and strengthens our faith. The preacher contrasts this spiritual nourishment, which is ours by grace, with the dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant, which he says, have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, this is the second time in his sermon he's referred to such old covenant food. The first was back in chapter 9 in verses 9 through 10 when he said this, according to this arrangement, referring to the old covenant, gifts and sacrifices were offered or are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. There it is. Deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And then again, in chapter 9 and verses 13 through 14, just after that passage, he says this, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so we see a contrast between that which purifies the flesh and that which purifies the conscience or the soul. Just as the blood of the old covenant sacrifices in themselves could only purify the flesh, 
so its special food and drink could only strengthen the body in themselves. They were appropriate as shadows of the Christ to come. And insofar as Old Covenant saints looked beyond them by faith to what they signified, they served as spiritual nourishment. They were means by which God administered Christ to His people. But once Christ came at His first coming, once He came into this world, once the Son was incarnated, once the time of reformation came, those old covenant types and shadows were rendered obsolete, which is why the preacher says they have not benefited those devoted to them. Because rather than leading them to Christ, they were, as they were originally meant to do, they'd been perverted to lead them away, and them and others away from Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, we have an altar from which, to, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. As he's done throughout his sermon, the preacher now compares the old covenant pattern of worship with the new covenant pattern of worship in order to demonstrate the superiority of the new covenant pattern. As we've already noted, the church to which the preacher wrote had been tempted by false teachers to turn back to that old covenant pattern, to go back to the old Jerusalem, to go back to the old Levitical priesthood and the old animal sacrifices at the temple. And it apparently, it appears here that the false teachers argued for the superiority of the old covenant pattern of worship by pointing out that there was neither altar nor special food in the new covenant pattern of worship. In the old covenant, the priests served God and His people at the tent, at the tabernacle. That's what the tent there means. They offered up animal sacrifices for themselves and for the rest of the church on the altar that sat in the tabernacle's courtyard. Some of the meat that was left over from those offerings was then given to the priests as their food, and only they could eat that meat. And so the contrast the preacher now develops is between those old covenant priests who had the right to eat those sacrifices from that old covenant altar and the new covenant priests, that is, all believers in Christ who have the right to eat the sacrifice from the new covenant altar, which is Golgotha, and the sacrifice is Christ Himself. Christ has become... Christ has become our spiritual food. Just as the preacher taught the crowd about, or just as Jesus taught, him, taught the crowd about himself in chapter 6 in verses 50 through 51 of the Gospel of John. You remember what Jesus told the crowd there that followed him across the sea to the city of Capernaum. He told them not to seek after that food that could only fill the belly, but to seek after that true food from heaven. And then he said this about himself. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And again in John 6, verses 53 through 56, just after that, he says this, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So there we see Jesus appealing to the old covenant holy foods in order to teach that He's the ultimate fulfillment of those things. He has become true spiritual drink and true spiritual food for all who believe in Him. He is that food for your soul. Look at verses 11 through 12. The preacher continues, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So the preacher now connects the new covenant sacrifice of Christ even more specifically to the old covenant sacrifices that were offered and whose blood was taken into the most holy place by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. We read about those sacrifices earlier from Leviticus chapter 16. They were to be offered up holy unto God, which meant their bodies were completely incinerated. And this, is all, this all happened outside the camp, signifying the final removal of every vestige of sin from the church. Jesus' self-sacrifice is the eschatological fulfillment of all, those, all that those sacrifices signified. Just as they were burned outside the camp, so Jesus suffered the curse of the law for His people outside the gate at Golgotha. And just as those sacrifices signified atonement for the sins of all the sins, all the unintentional sins of the congregation for the whole previous year, so the sacrifice of Christ actually accomplishes the atonement of our sins once for all at the cross. That old covenant pattern, as we see very clearly from chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews, was a perpetual pattern. The day of atonement had to be celebrated every year. Perpetual sacrifices offered every year because the blood of goats and bulls can't take away sins. But if you want to point to one particular moment in the old covenant pattern that signifies beyond any other moment the finality of the sacrifice of Christ, it would be the sacrifices offered on the Day of Atonement. Those sacrifices covered the unintentional sins for the the whole previous year, and they were completely incinerated outside the camp. So Jesus' blood is effective not simply for the purification of the flesh, as the blood of goats and bulls was, but for the purification of the soul. He gave Himself, He gave Himself to sanctify you, beloved, that you might be set apart and share in His holiness and be perfected with Him in glory, spiritually at death 
and physically at the resurrection on the last day. This is the glory of the new covenant administration. We have an altar from which to eat that no old covenant priest could eat from. We feed spiritually upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that true bread from heaven. And so I call upon you this morning to feed spiritually upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given Himself for you that you might have access to true food and true drink. Are you hungry? Are you hungry for Christ? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount. Flee to Him. Feed upon Him. Trust in Him. And know that He has secured an everlasting and eternal redemption for you. That's why none of us came to worship this morning bringing goats or bulls. This Friday I was manning a booth in front of Neon Reformed Presbyterian Church during a festival called Neon Days. One of the young men from the church was there with me. And we saw an older man walking through the city. He had a goat on a leash. At first I thought, this is, this is kind of odd. And then it hit me, because I've been preaching through Hebrews. I tapped my friend on the shoulder. I said, you know, if we were still in the old covenant, that's what we'd all look like coming to worship. We'd be bringing sacrificial animals because there's still remembrance of our sins, you see. But we come into worship that's not marked and moved along by death, but marked and moved along by life. The resurrection life of Christ through the outpoured Holy Spirit. We don't enter into earthly copies like a tabernacle or temple. I'm not a priest in the sense that I'm set apart and you as an ordinary believer have to come to the Lord through me. No. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been made a priest of the Melchizedekian order. Just as, and just as that Melchizedekian order has no beginning and no end, no genealogy, right? the same is true for you. You have been empowered by the Spirit, raised to walk in newness of life, through the better propitiation, which is Christ Himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that it teaches us the good news of Jesus Christ, the way You've revealed Yourself and Your will of salvation for us in the sending of Your Son in Spirit. And Father, we pray this morning that you would grant that this word might indeed fall into our hearts as infertile soil and produce much fruit to your glory. We ask it in Christ's name.
Amen.